Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter five. I'm going to read the first six verses. Uh, we, we might say that this little chunk in the letter is something of a, a climax in, in the, the, the whole argument that Paul has been adopting uh, with his uh, haranguing, in a sense, his persuasion, his agony for these Galatians. Chapter 5 and verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Bear with. Mm. Oh dear, I've got a bit of a, I've got a little bit of a throat. I don't know, um, I'm, not, I'm feeling fine, just, just croaky throat. Freedom. The residents, villages in and around the lakes in Montreal, North Canada, uh, they have a strange little custom every year um, towards the end of winter. This is according to Tom Wright in one of his commentaries. Uh, they get an old clapped out car that they were just going to take to the dump anyway, and they drive it onto the frozen lakes that, that regularly freeze every year uh, each winter, to, to sometimes to a depth of 10 or 12 feet. Um, so, so you can walk across them and, and, and drive across them, and they, they drive a car towards the end of winter, they drive a car and leave it in the middle of the lake. Because all that winter, um, they can skate and um, walk across. It's quite convenient, actually. You can take a shortcut. And rather than having to go round the lake to a neighboring village or town, you can just um, skate across it or, or drive across it. Um, that's great. Except that as sure as night follows day, um, so spring follows winter and the promise of summer after that. And the frozen lakes will thaw but they're never quite sure when. And so the ways in which they have got used to driving across and traveling across the lakes during winter time will forever change. How will they know? So they leave a car on the lake. <laughs> and when they wake up in the morning and they don't see the car anymore, they know that the ice on the lake can no longer bear the weight of a car and therefore it'd be risky to drive. But more than that, it tells them that um, the disappearing car means that winter is 
coming to be over and spring is kind of here and with it summer. And the ferries that ply their trade for passengers and cargo and everyone else during the summer months will soon be operating. This is a powerful sentence here that, <clears throat> that kicks off this passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, if we can extend without butchering the analogy, <laughs> Jesus Christ, his, particularly his life, his teaching, his, his, his ministry amongst us, but in particular his death and resurrection is like the car on the lake going under. It, it, it signals a sea change. It signals a forever something over and something else begun. Jesus' death and resurrection is like the car sinking. And the gift of God's spirit is like the ticket to the ferry. So the ferry may not be running yet. I, I may not be free to completely travel in the new world order summer rather than winter but I know I can't it, it, is, it is risky and dangerous life threatening for me now to travel in the old order I dare not drive across the lake in my car and this ticket tells me that it is only a matter of time before I will be able to cross the lake via the ferry and, and Paul is saying to the Galatians at the, at the beginning of this era that we are we, we're still in we're in this time zone, in the whole of the history of time. We're in this time zone where Christ has come to overthrow the old world order and usher in the new. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Um, we could get into interesting sort of theological debate about interpretations of Galatians, um, old perspectives, new perspectives, uh, apocalyptic perspectives. That's throwing the cat amongst some theological pigeons. Not going to go massively into it, other than that some say that Paul, with his letter to the Galatians, and you see it in his letter to the Ephesians, he's, he's got in mind the kind of corrosive powers and principalities that we talked about in Ephesians, the, the, the sort of the, the, the stuff of life, the substance of our society, our culture, um, the spiritual realms, if you like, uh, have so enslaved us that, that we, it's like we're, we're bound to sin, we're, we're bound to fall short, we're, we're bound to, to live restricted lives and God has come in Christ to liberate us the world, the creation, from its bondage to decay, as he says in the letter of the Romans. And Christ is the one who ushers in freedom. Summer, the unfreezing of the lake, boats and ferries can travel across. I want to think about freedom this evening. It is for freedom. What is this freedom? Freedom from what? Freedom for what or whom? What does freedom look like in the life of a believer or a church, a nation, a world that is bound to God in order to be free? Our modern Western culture, and I, and I kind of stress that because the commentators 
would argue that the way in which we see the world, our, our worldview, the framework, is, is um, relatively peculiar to us and our times. It's not shared by Africans, that's a generalization, Indians, but many parts of the world today. And it hasn't always been shared by us. It's ushered in by philosophers like Locke and Hobbes in the, in the so-called sort of intellectual uh, revolution, the Enlightenment period. Uh, the idea that ultimate freedom is gained and experienced when an individual, you and I, are free from anything outside of ourselves that poses a, a threat or offers restraint, that restricts our ability to choose, our right to choose what we'll do, when we'll do it, with whom we'll do it, etc. Any external, so any government or society, any culture, any other individual who, who, who seeks to restrict our individual right to choose inhibits our freedom. We're not free. So true freedom is when all those restraints are cast off. The autonomous individual with the right to choose. Freedom for self if you like. But, and uh, if you were here, I guess there probably weren't many who were here just because of uh, how many have joined us and are joining us, but if you were here when we reopened this building after our building project, we had the Bishop of Kensington who, who came, Graham Tonlin, who came to speak, uh, and he spoke to his book. I'm going to just quote from it a little bit later on. Uh, he, he gave just a fantastic um, so if you, it's in November 2019, uh, he gave a fantastic exposition of Christian freedom. I, and he, he said, the, the trouble with this, this idea that true freedom is the complete absence of any kind of restraint for the individual is that sooner or later, you will bump up against someone else seeking to exercise the self-same freedom. So I might say that I love having a, aggressive dogs uh, roaming free in my garden. But my next door neighbor says, well, I love keeping cats. And, and so you can see how their right to choose their particular preferences will come into kind of clash with, with mine. I might love on a summer's evening to play really loud music of a particular genre which may not quite accord with your musical taste, let alone your desire to have music blaring out on a last summer's evening. Constantly we will come up against one another and we increase the risk of seeing one another as a threat to our freedom. You are now creeping into the zone where you're restricting my freedom. And the result there is the increased tendency for us as individuals to withdraw from the other in order to protect the freedom that I notionally think is mine, that I seek to claim. Terry Eagleton has pointed out that ultimate freedom, if it's defined in reference to self, like all restraints so that I am free, ultimate freedom is actually illusory, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. Because if you think about it, every expression of myself, 
anything that I do necessarily has some form of constraint, which is how I understand more about myself. I'm trying to explain. I'm a, I'm a, a, a male, middle-aged, if you're being kind, towards elderly, <laughs> in white skin. And, and that, that, that immediately brings constraints on how I see the world and how I understand who I am in relation to others. I, I'm not a woman. I don't, I don't therefore see as, or think or perceive as a woman does or as someone in brown or black skin does uh, or as a young person does. And, and however we understand ourselves, we might be a, uh, a climate change activist, we might be um, a Brazilian, we might have a physical disability, that will always begin to define and therefore bring some kind of constraint on who I am. But that's how, in relation to others, I begin to understand who I am. If, if, if there was absolutely nothing that differentiated me from anyone else, then all differences would disappear, I would disappear. And with its freedom. What if, what if freedom isn't actually, in essence, a right? So the floor, and Tomlin is very good in his book at pointing this out, is that the Enlightenment thinkers started by assuming that the, the natural state of human beings was a clean sheet of paper. It was, it was neutral. It was, everyone was equal. And therefore, if there was a, a kind of constraint on freedom, then all that was required was for individuals to sort of push back those restraints so that the individual could enjoy freedom again. So we derive from that that the individual has a right to freedom because we've started from a level playing field, from a clean sheet of paper. I, I speak to you, forgive me for the self-reference, I, I speak to you as someone who's parented three children, who's talked to other people who... I've never, ever heard of a parent, and it certainly wasn't our experience, where we had to teach our children from a very early age how to be naughty. Never had to teach. I've never known a parent say, you're being so good. It's quite important so that you fit in with your classmates. It's quite important that I teach you how to be naughty. Never have those teachers amongst you, you all of us. We just have within us an innate bias to veer away from what we know is good towards idolatry, evil, <laughs> away from God. Now, St. Paul is operating, unlike the Enlightenment thinkers, from a biblical worldview that understands the impact of the fall and therefore the stain on all humanity which we come to know as original sin. It's just, it's just part of our makeup. We're like that, that crown green bowling ball. It looks beautiful, set it off in a wonderful straight line and it starts off in a straight line and it just, it has that internal bias in it. So it veers off one way or another. I mean, that, that, that's the point of the ball so you can curve it in. But for the sake of the analogy, we veer away. It's part of all of us. And Paul is realistic about that. So, so when we start to assert our right to be free, we do it from a flawed starting point. And, and, and so all our attempts at freedom become sin-stained as we elbow others out of the way to assert our right for freedom. What if freedom isn't a right? What if freedom is a gift. 
What if the starting point is that we're not free, we're, we're bound by that element of our human nature that curves us away from God and curves us into ourselves? What if God in his grace and his love and his mercy sees us in our plight and enters into our plight through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ takes on the burden of our selfishness, our self-centeredness and conquers it in and through the cross, vindicated by the resurrection, to offer us freedom not as something that we can ever assume or presume upon, but as a, a gift to receive. So that receiving the gift of God's love frees me to understand myself in relation to others. The God who incidentally is three in one. We, we think of the Trinity as, as unity, but also as diversity. They, they understand themselves in relation to others. That's how the character and the nature of God is fully called out in relation to other, and he gives us that. It's not a right. He could just leave us to our sin, but he doesn't want to do that. He comes in and gives us the ability to know how freeing it is to understand myself in relation to him and to understand myself in relation to others. So that in that relationship, freedom releases others, not to protect their rights, but to pass on the gift of love that has released me in order that it might release others too. This is, this is what Tomlin says in the conclusion to his book. He says, if the purpose of human life is, as Jesus Christ says, to become capable of love for God and my neighbor, then my neighbor in all his particularity is in one sense offered to me as an opportunity to exercise love and compassion, the very thing I'm here to learn so that I can become more fully free and more fully human. I just want to pause just to let the, the truth and the beauty Feed your, my soul with true freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In order that as we exercise that freedom in relation with others, we receive others different from ourselves as gift to enable me to express the love of God that he's already poured out me, express it to others. I become more fully human. They become more fully human. We by being more fully human, glorify the God who made us. Not freedom from, freedom for. We were made for a purpose to express the freedom that God has released us into. I was rummaging around um, Matt's uh, Matt's worship cupboard, and I, and I came across a prized guitar. G. Pixie, yeah. D. Showing off now. Uh, e, e minor. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus. Look at these strings, though, on this guitar. G, D, E minor. They are trapped. They're constrained. They are not free. Look at this string here. I'm going to release it. Come on, let's release the string. Free the string. Let's start a campaign. Let's get placards going. Let's go on a march. Free the string. It's not free. I'm going to release it from its bondage, from its captivity. It is constrained. It can't go anywhere. Look at this. I'm going to liberate the string. Matthew, you're looking doubtful. It's happening. Free the string. Yes! The string is free. It's, it's, what can it do? It can do everything. Look, it can just jiggle around. It could be a lasso. It could, I don't know, be a Mexican wave. It's free. I've freed the string. The string is free. And useless. The, the string is useless. It's now in camp. It can't do what is that? It's good for nothing. This string cannot do what it was created or designed to do. This, this string was created, designed with, with a beautiful purpose, to be precisely constrained, like, like taught to a, a minute fraction, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, out of tune. Get it just right, and it plays its part in the six-string acoustic guitar to play G and D and how many other chords I might be able to muster. We, we, we derive joy from the beauty of strings that are bound in order to be free. When you, when you practiced your scales on your panel, you just practiced your scales, practiced your scales, was, was that inhibiting? No, it was a discipline in order to release you to play any music that was set before you. Not just so that you could be good at playing scales. No, you get good at playing scales to release you into even greater freedom. You, you learn your grammar and your vocab, Spanish, let's say. Not, not just so that you're good at learning Spanish words, but so that you can converse with any Spaniard anywhere in the world, or indeed anyone else who speaks Spanish. So that you can enter into the culture and the idioms as an expat in Spain. Think of our Olympians, five days on from now, I think it is, for a month or so. They have been training themselves, punishing themselves, literally blood, sweat and tears. I'm convinced of it. Getting up at ungodly hours, restricting themselves to horrendous diets. Training, training, training. Why? Just so that they can look like emaciated human beings with no sad, no social life? No. So that they give themselves the best chance of stepping into immortality, to writing themselves on the pages of history, of wearing a medal. That I'm reading Alison Brownie's book at the moment. His he's double Olympic champion. He he talks about. He's free to talk to anyone. Anyone will talk to him. All these people he's never even met. Just the freedom that comes from choosing to be bound in particular ways, a string to a guitar, a linguist, an athlete, a musician. It's not restrictive, it's liberating. It's how we're created to be, bound to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is summed up as um, freed slaves. And the New Testament is people who choose to be slaves in order to experience freedom and as we as we choose to become Jesus servants what does he say to us John 15 I no longer call you servants the the, the beauty is he honors 
our, you know, he honors our subservience. We, we go to him to serve him, to bind ourselves to him, and he releases us. Everything the Father makes known to me, I make known to you. I, I, I want to release you so that you can be my hands and feet and my ears and my voice, my presence around this aching world that thinks it's free and is so bound. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we come to communion. Mindful that Paul has already said, we've looked at this and we, chapter two and verse 20, I have been, this is Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live frozen lake. That, that way of life, that mindset, that worldview, it's thawing, it's over. It's done, the car has sunk, Jesus, death, resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ. I bind myself to his death. I'll restrict, inverted commas, myself to his death so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We, we come to communion, or well, we'll come to you as you stay. <laughs> That's how the logistics work. I'll explain more in a minute. But we bind ourselves to a liberator who was in full liberty in heaven, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He chose the trajectory to earth. He bound himself to our time-space continuum. He, he restricted himself to a human body of flesh and blood. Not only that, he took on the form of a, a servant and he hung on a criminal's cross. He bound himself for our sake. He gave himself for us in order that we in return might give ourselves to him and know the delicious freedom that comes as we join all the sons and daughters of God as we take this freedom into an aching and hurting world. Jesus came to liberate us from that in the world which enslaves and inhibits us in order that we might walk in freedom, authority, so that we, we, we practice loving God not, not as a self-centered, fearful slave doing good deeds to try and bolster his own sense or her own sense of security, trying to justify himself to the master. No, we, we, we exercise the liberty and the freedom that is ours in Christ to live as sons and daughters, knowing that we are secure, knowing our inheritance, and so therefore every good deed is done simply as an expression of Christ in us for the sake of others. It's not freedom for self, it's freedom from self, so that we focus on others with what Paul says, it's Christ's love compelling us. Isn't this, isn't this fantastic? I mean, this is revolutionary to the culture that we live in, but, but so freeing, isn't it? When you, when you take this and you think, yes, this, sort of, this is speaking to a part of me, this is talking to a part of me that the marketeers and the adverts and uh, all the pop-up, everything else around screams the opposite. And somehow this is so deliciously liberating as we look to live this way. So that we, we love our neighbor for our neighbor's sake, not seeking anything in return. We love to do good deeds for goodness' sake. 
because Christ has liberated us. I'm, I'm not looking to get anything, to secure anything, to bolster anything. I'm, I'm freed by the love that came and released me out of bondage to slavery. There's relief, you, me, us, the church, around the world, into this kingdom freedom. I'm free to love God for God's sake. I'm free to love my neighbor for my neighbor's sake. I'm free to love goodness for goodness sake. So as we take bread, which incidentally is a, a wafer, there's some um, uh, wafers for those that are, what's, I always forget what they're called, the square ones. Um, gluten-free, thank you. Uh, gluten-free wafers, it's non-alcoholic wine. It's a symbol if you like, but we take it physically. It becomes part of us, of Jesus' sacrifice, his death and resurrection. We take the wafer, hold on to it, and then dip it into the wine. We have dispensation at this time to receive communion in both kinds in that way. And we remember that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As he bound himself to us, we bind ourselves to him to know that freedom that one day will liberate the whole of creation. Ticket to the ferry across the lake forever. Let's pause for a moment.